My name is Robin Amlo, and I'm joined for this conversation by Nicholas Hacking, Director of ERI Bancaire, and Jean-Philippe Bercier, Director of Business Development, ERI Bancaire. Let's focus in on a white paper you had published recently, Tier 2 and 3 Institutions in Banking, According to the Conclusions, Outperforming Tier 1 in Europe. Why? Well, I believe uh, Tier 2 and Tier 3 banks uh, by definition, are smaller. They have less money, which to some extent is a good news because they have to be more efficient, more agile, and they they have probably a closer and more interesting relationship with their clients. And as such, the decision cycle and the agility those banks can really uh, demonstrate generate basically better solution for their clients. Is it inevitable then that tier one banks are always going to lag? No, of course, there is no generic rule. I believe, however, that's considering the size of a tier one bank, large organizations, uh, many multiple layers of decision will certainly lead to a slower, uh, it's a slower organization and therefore, uh, despite the money they have uh, to make interesting projects, uh, there are probably too many stakeholders and therefore, they lose the agility that a tier two bank may demonstrate. What do we mean by agility in this instance? I think it's agility to make decisions. It's agility to watch what's going on outside the bank, so to think about their customers. And as their customers' requirements change, to change probably more rapidly because the organization can be more flexible, because it's smaller. Therefore, it's easier to push through change. Uh, and equally, it's also probably agile in the PL sense because it's a smaller organization and more flexible. It's easier to cut costs, you've got less bureaucracy. And I think that also makes it more agile. In terms of being a tier two, three institution, then presumably they all have ambitions to be tier one at some stage. <laughs> I'm sure some do, but I I think others would just be very happy to be a successful Tier 2 or Tier 3 institution. Their shareholders are more interested in in return than 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 on size. As an organisation of that size, then, does it mean that I can be faster to market with my product strategy? Does it mean I have less fears of embracing technology, for example? Faster to market, I think that probably would be the case for most. Fear about technology, I'm sure that applies to a to, to degree to everybody. Yes, to the very large banks, the idea of changing any of their core systems is probably anathema, simply because of the risks involved. And we've seen what happened in some of the, the more recent incidents of, of things going wrong, particularly here in the UK. But I think even the smaller banks are fearful about changes in technology because in many cases it's something they don't really understand and probably don't have much expertise in-house on the subject. But change is coming though, surely. We hear an awful lot about how technology is changing banking. There is a whole, wherever you look in Europe, there's a whole raft of new banks, challenger banks, I don't know if they're all going to be around in 10 years' time, but the fact that there is this new wave that has come out of technological development effectively is going to change the face of banking. Well, I think it is already changing the face of banking, but, and clearly even the Tier 1 banks have changed to a degree their offering, but in some cases 
at a cost, uh, Jean-Philippe was saying earlier, you know, it is a question of if you are changing, but you're not changing everything, you're changing the layer that's customer-facing, and it's quite complicated and therefore expensive to continue to interact with your legacy systems behind that, that has a cost. Yes, it may help your customer-facing relationship. It may help automating your processing to a degree, but there is a significant cost. Whereas if you are a flexible tier two or tier three bank and say, okay, we see these things happening, we need to change, but actually for us, with some fears, perhaps we change our core banking system, then you know you don't need all necessarily so many other layers on top. Is it the case that it's digital or die? I, as a banker, have to have a digital strategy. I have to have something in place, a plan, to deal with the changes that are coming. I think it's it's obvious that today, at least in the retail banking industry, the this, this statement is absolutely true. Apart from naturally the challenger banks, the new banks or those neo-banks, which basically are technology company offering financial services more than traditional banks, the, the large institutions, the incumbent, as we name them, must absolutely adapt to that new world. Otherwise, they will be just uh, left left out. And, and their, their cost structure of such large organization will have a very strong impact on their on their margin and it's absolutely key for them to remain first of all to offer good services with with good return and keeping the cost base at the lowest possible level and we know that for a tier 1 institution lowering this cost base is extremely difficult because their global infrastructure is extremely complex uh, relying on systems that have been created probably 30 years ago for some of the layers. And it's very difficult, if not impossible, to get rid of all that old infrastructure. Newcomers do not have that challenge because they start from a white page. Uh, smaller banks, tier 2, tier 3, tier 4, they can be very innovative. They can partner very quickly with fintechs to offer uh, new services. They are less afraid probably to partner with fintechs and they consider those fintechs as co-opetition more than pure competition. Basically, again, agility is key and they can do something maybe in six months or three months that would take probably two years for a very large institution. Really, the consequence has huge impact on, 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 the, on the way the, the banks uh, should evolve and propose new, new products, new services. Well, regulation is also changing banking, and it's not just a matter of there being more and more complex regulation because of the crisis that happened 10 years ago. Banking is also being opened up. We yeah. have open banking. This is a regulatory change, which is, in theory, when it happens, is going to make banking more competitive, more transparent. We keep on hearing about how this is going to change way the, the way the customers interact with their banks, and I think that that is going to happen not just in the retail space, but also, for example, in, in the private banking wealth management space where we are very active. And I'm sure we will see, as more openness comes about, that the relationships and the type of communication a customer has with their bank will change. Obviously, it will make them easier to, to switch 
organization because of the openness, the ease of using APIs, etc., to move from one bank to another. We've seen that in the UK for the current accounts with the current account switching service, but open banking will mean it be relatively easy in future to perhaps even switch your portfolio from one bank to another or a proportion of your portfolio without going through all the bureaucracy that exists today. In the private banking wealth management sector, this is also going to put added pressure on the human element because there's going to be so much that the system can do automatically and a robo-advisor can do automatically for me as a an investor or, or an account holder, there is going to be added pressure to upskill the relationship managers in the financial institutions as well, isn't there? There's been that pressure for a while. They need to upskill. Some of them already are. Well, it depends on the organisation, of course, and the individual. But I think equally, you mentioned robo-advisors. We've seen quite a few banks that started off with a robo-proposition actually now coming away from that because they've worked out that people also need a human touch. And I think that you know even at the lower ends of the wealth management scale, people are still looking to speak to somebody from time to time, though they're also wanting, open to, a very digital way of communicating with the bank. They want both. I think the, the, the future for that industry is what we call the augmented relationship manager. Actually, uh, the, the personal touch is very important. We are talking about money, we are talking about emotions, but it's absolutely key that the RMs of the future will, f- first of all, have a deep knowledge of the financial products, of the situation of the client, but naturally with the help of additional digital tools that can really analyze the performance in detail, that can give recommendation based on you know, deep learning capacities, capabilities, and all those kind of things that will bring additional value to the advice that ARM could give to, to, to his client. It's not technology against uh, personal touch or human relationship. It's, it's both. It's the combination of the two that will definitely make a difference for, for those uh, wealth managers. Is it inevitable that the systems of the future and the core banking systems of the future are going to be cloud-based? I think to a large degree, yes, but I'm sure there will always be exceptions. I think as an international company serving banks in many different geographies, we notice that whereas in some geographies it's easy to say that, and you can see that very clearly coming, in others the pure geographical communications etc constraints or even regulatory constraints mean the cloud is not going to happen now or in the near future maybe even never who knows so i I think it's, it's easy sitting in the developed western environment to say yes the cloud is going to be there try that in a bank in the middle of africa where the internet connections are not great and you're not sure about the whether the data centre is going to get flooded. Banks need to adapt to their local environment. What are the obstacles that Tier 2, 3 banks face in selecting a core banking system? I would say one of the first ones is, because of their size, in some cases, in many cases, they don't often get to do that. So you change systems only once every so often, normally. So most people at a senior decision-making level in a bank don't do that very often in their career. As a result, people are normally a bit 
frightened, fearful of doing something they're not used to doing, like anything else. You drive in a strange city late at night, you're a bit anxious about taking the wrong turning, etc. So they don't have the experience, and I think they don't necessarily always have the access to the knowledge, or indeed the, the information about what's available on the market. We've seen a number of, of instances where organisations simply haven't known what, it, what are the choices available to them, who are the suppliers out there, and what can people do. Once they start looking at that, and if they're able to spend the time on it, then their eyes are opened. But even then, as part of looking at you know, what system do I select, what supplier do I select, it's a relatively strange process for them. And unless they are advised by an external consulting firm or, or somebody else, uh, or have done it several times, the chances are there are many things they won't think about and perhaps then regret later. Can you, either of you, outline some of the common mistakes that people should watch out for or, or try to avoid? The biggest risk in such a project is basically the change management and the way to uh, listen to the user, to em embark the users in, in that process, uh, to really ensure that the systems will be used in its, in its best possible way to avoid the classical risk to basically redesign in the new system the processes that were used with the old systems. And that's a natural behavior of human beings to try to replicate what they know. They are not necessarily always rethinking the way they do things every day. By implementing a new system, basically, the organization must adapt to the systems, adopt the system, and not vice versa. And probably the biggest risk, and when we look at failure, uh, that's 90% of the time in that specific area where the, the highest risk is lying. Yeah, there's no point investing all that money in a new system that is going to give you all sorts of great things for the future in terms of agility, in terms of speed to market, in terms of reporting, speeding up the back office, and then trying to replicate doing things the old way. Absolutely. And that's the risk, and we see it even though at the beginning of the project, the statement from the, the top management is, we adopt uh, the system, how it works, we adopt the process, everybody agrees. Then when you start doing the workshops... The, the, no, I'm the, sorry, the, this is the way we do things here, <laughs> and we don't is going to be to the attitude you'll exactly. get. Exactly, that happens. And this is, this is really the biggest risk. It has to be stressed and highlighted at the very beginning and continuously during the, the, the project. Otherwise... Naturally, modern technologies allows any type of process to be implemented. It's just a question of cost. But is this new process the most efficient one? Certainly not. When a bank buys a software package, a state-of-the-art software package, it also buys, to some extent, a kind of best practice process embedded into the product. And it would be really nonsense not to use that know-how in the product and rebuild everything from scratch. Uh, that would basically destroy the added value of going for a state-of-the-art solution. Thank you very much, Jean-Philippe Bercier and Nicolas Hacking of ERI Bancaire.